chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one under seats nearby, and it's on page 977 in those Bibles. If you're newer to Zionsville Fellowship, you're visiting this Sunday, my name's Drew. I'm one of the pastors here, and we usually take this time to work through a section of the Bible together. We believe that the Bible is God's speech to us through various human authors, so we believe that in this time with God's Word, we're hearing from Him on the pages of Scripture. And so we're going to read from Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 3 to 6 together this morning. Let's actually start at the beginning of the chapter, though. We covered a bit of that last week. So Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Let's pray together. Our Father, we have come to hear Your Word. We thank You for speaking to us by the Spirit in these past few moments together reading this, and we pray that You would open our minds to understand Your Word properly this morning, engage our hearts to respond, the core of our personality rightly to who You are, and transform the way we live as a result of our time together. We pray this for Your glory in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Thanksgiving is central to what it means to be a Christian. If you ask what the Christian life should look like, one of the primary words should be thankfulness. One author said that thankfulness is in some ways a summary of the Christian life. And the word thanksgiving is the key word in the text that we just read this morning. This actually surprised me the past couple weeks as I was preparing for this Sunday's message and thinking about it. I had never seen just how central thanksgiving was to really the point that the Apostle Paul is making in this section. So even as I thought ahead to this Sunday, I was thinking, you don't always necessarily do a thanksgiving message on this weekend, but I thought with some of the content of this text, Man, that's an interesting fit. And then as I studied this further and noticing that Thanksgiving is actually the heart of this text. It's the main word, key idea in this text. So it's actually a perfect fit for this weekend in many ways. Look at verses 3 to 4. I just want to show you this. Paul lists six things that should be absolutely out of place in the Christian life, and then he gives the alternative. But notice when he gives the alternative, he doesn't list six virtues. He just lists one, and it's at the end of verse 4. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. That phrase is the main point of the text. This is essentially saying here are a number of things that are not fitting in the Christian life, so leave these behind, and in their place put one main thing, thanksgiving. So here's the main idea at the heart of the Christian life. It's thanksgiving, and thanksgiving 
replaces and pushes out every other sinful attitude and behavior. So you can picture it like this. We're living our lives of ungratefulness and resulting in all sorts of various sins of various forms, uh, sinful behavior, negative emotions, ungratefulness to the Lord. And then God speaks a word of grace into the world through sending Jesus who lived for us perfectly and died and was crucified for our sins, was buried, rose on the third day, is exalted to heaven, and now good news is proclaimed. And this message of grace, of a a welcome from the Father and the Creator of the universe, this good news is proclaimed in the world, and it enters into our hearts, and it, it it creates this response of thankfulness which pushes out all of these other sinful attitudes, negative emotions, and behaviors in our lives. This is how God's changing the world, through His message of grace. So, Paul points to three categories of sin here that he calls us to leave behind and replace with thanksgiving. The three categories are sexual immorality, greed, and crude speech. So, before we look at these more closely, I just want to acknowledge that personally, these are heavy topics especially the first one. Some of us here have shame and regret in our background. Maybe you've caused pain to others. Maybe people have deeply wounded you. Maybe you feel even currently sexually addicted or enslaved to certain emotions and patterns of behavior. So my hope for you would be that the Lord would begin or continue a process of transformation by His Holy Spirit to bring real freedom and healing. And culturally, the Bible's perspective on sexuality in general is a minority view. Now, we're living in a transitional cultural moment. The historic Christian vision of sexuality is increasingly implausible and impractical in our, to our culture's mind, and so we have to see how this short paragraph is actually incredibly helpful to us today. It gives us a surprising perspective. It's ultimately about leading us to live a life of true thankfulness, and we can see how this then relates to every other behavior that we have. So, there are essentially three key movements to this text. We see what is entirely out of place first, and then the one thing that is most fitting, and why this all matters. So, first, what is entirely out of place? In this part of Ephesians, Paul is showing us this new life that Christians have by being united to Jesus through faith. So, we have a new identity at Christians. You can look back at verse 1 with me. Notice what he calls Christians beloved children. So we have God as our Father. We're adopted into His family as beloved sons and daughters. In verse 2, Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us as a sacrifice. So now that we're His loved and forgiven children through Jesus' sacrifice, we're now thinking about how we should live differently, how this should change our attitudes and actions. And so He gives us now three categories that He says are entirely out of place in the Christian life. Look at what he says about these at the end of verse 3. He lists some of these and he says, these must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. At the end of verse 4, he names a few more and says, which are out of place. So Paul is giving some absolutes here. He's saying these are things that should not have any place at all whatsoever among Christians. These are entirely out of step with following Jesus. And these three categories really cover an incredible amount of our lives. The three categories have to do with sex, money, 
and speech. He's addressing sexual immorality and greed and certain kinds of speech here. So let's consider each of these. First, sexual immorality starts the list in verse 3. This is one of the most important topics for modern Christians to think about. Not because we've chosen to think about this, but because in our cultural moment, we have to. What do we think about um, sexuality here? In past centuries, the historic Christian view was largely embraced by Western culture. It was the norm, and because it was the norm, Christians didn't really have to do much thinking about it. We weren't forced to in that, in that sense about why this makes sense, why this is good for human flourishing, why God did make the world this way. So no one was really calling it into question, so Christians by and large didn't give much thought to this. But we're in a new era, and many people now are thinking that the historic Christian vision is intellectually incredible and morally suspect. So one good thing that has come about as a result of this, though, is that as Christians, we now are called to think And we have to think. We have to think well about what it means to be a Christian embodied as sexual creatures. What does it mean to have gender from the Lord? So this forces us to think about why the the Christian vision of sexuality and marriage is actually good for human flourishing. So we need to think this through. Now, the Greek word Paul uses here for sexual immorality is an important one for Christians to know, I think, which is the word porneia. It's an important word for us to understand. Very often when you read those two words, sexual immorality, in the New Testament, it's translating this word porneia. And this word is a general term. It typically refers to any form of sexual immorality or activity that's out of step with God's positive vision for sexual activity. So this word porneo usually refers to any form of sexual activity that's out of step with God's positive vision for sexual activity. So in order to understand then what porneo refers to, we have to know what God's positive vision is because anything that is sexually immoral or noted by this word porneo is a deviation from that. So what's the positive vision? Well, the positive vision can be summarized in a number of ways, but here are two words that can summarize it. Consensual and covenantal. It's the marriage covenant. God created sexual expression as a good gift, and the context for that gift is the marriage covenant between one man and one woman. Marriage is the holistic union between a man and a woman. And this positive vision is set out right on the first pages of the Bible. Genesis 1 to 2, at the beginning of the Bible story with Adam and Eve in Eden. God creates them. He makes them naked and not ashamed. I was reading that with my boys just last night. We're just reading through the Bible together, and we read that, and they were surprised, right? And by the way, I think we should be talking about these things at the earliest possible age, especially in our culture. If we're not, as parents, discipling our children to think well about sexuality and gender, the culture certainly is from ages three upward. Um, So, what a striking picture, though. You open the Bible, chapter two, the Lord makes Adam and Eve, brings them together in a marriage covenant. By the way, the first command in the Bible is be fruitful and multiply. It's a positive vision. This is before sin entered the world, this beautiful paradise, and the first command is go enjoy sex. Because, and if that's surprising, it just shows how much we've been influenced by to think that perhaps the Christian, the Christian vision of sexuality is somehow negative at its core. It's not. The Lord made this up. And here's Adam and Eve in the garden, 
able to offer an act of worship to the Lord, naked and not ashamed. And then Paul even quotes from Genesis 2.24 later in this chapter. You can just look ahead in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. Marriage is established and says, Therefore, this is a quotation from Genesis 2, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So there's this holistic union between a man and a woman. You really can't understand the Christian sexual ethic outside of this understanding of marriage. You can't understand what is sexually immoral without understanding what is sexually good and true and beautiful. So picture it like this. There's a circle around one man and one woman in a marriage covenant. Inside that circle, this man and a woman are covenanted together. They come together in a holistic union. They're joined together emotionally and spiritually and economically and socially. Inside this circle, God created this incredible gift of sexual expression Sex and all sexual expression, all sexual activity is intended by God to be found within this circle, and the activity is supposed to be both covenantal and consensual. And God gave humanity this gift in Eden before sin entered the world. This is an incredibly positive, happy vision of sexuality. As I mentioned a moment ago, the first commandment in the Bible is this blessing and commission to humanity to be fruitful and, in, and multiply. So this is God's idea. Uh, sex and sexual activity is not God's greatest gift. It's not essential to experiencing the fullness of joy as a human being. Jesus was never married. Many of us are not married or will not be married. So this is not essential for being a human being, but for those whom God has called into marriage. This is the context, the only context, to enjoy the gift of sexual expression and sex. So, the Bible says, enjoy it with thankfulness to God. And it's really only in light of this that we can understand the Bible's negative statements about certain aspects of sexual immorality. The Bible has such a low view of sexual immorality because it has such a high view of sex. You see that from here, from this vision from Genesis 1 and 2? So maybe you've thought, man, Christians have just such a low view of sex. They think it's bad. Now, it's true that some Christians have been overly negative um, about our bodies, about sex, but if they are, and to the degree that they are, it's out of step with the Bible. The Bible gives us a vision that's incredibly positive, and this is why it has such strong statements about sexual immorality. So this positive vision then helps us understand what's excluded. Paul says here that sexual immorality or porneia must not even be named among you as Christians. So what's he referring to there? Well, he's referring to anything outside of that circle. The circle around the marriage covenant of one man and one woman. Inside the circle is where all sexual expression belongs, and it's affirmed as good, but outside of that circle, it's off limits. The word porneia is like a catch-all to refer to sex and sexual activity outside of that context. So, for example, this would have included adultery. So, if a husband or a wife steps outside of the circle 
for sexual activity outside of that marriage covenant with someone else. It includes any sexual activity before marriage, and there aren't exceptions for dating and engagement. It's the marriage covenant that's the circle. This would also include same-sex sexual activity, because the Bible defines marriage as being between one man and one woman. It would include any sexual activity outside of that circle of marriage, so it would include any sexually charged touching or kissing or speaking. This includes anything done personally or privately with oneself. Any form of pornography is out of the question. So this is comprehensive. And I want to say again that the Bible is against sexual immorality because it is for this positive vision of sexual flourishing. And maybe another thing that might be helpful for me to say now is that I'm not making these things up. This isn't my opinion. I'm saying what the, his, the historic Christian vision for sexuality has been throughout the centuries, and these Christians throughout the centuries have gotten this from the Bible. So this isn't a new view. The reason this sounds so crazy and radical today is because we are in an incredibly unique cultural moment of experimentation. How did we get here? How did we get to a place where this vision of sexuality seems just so incredible and so implausible um, to us today? Well, it's incredibly complex, um, and I'd encourage you to just be thinking about that if you haven't already begun to, just thinking, how did we get here historically and in our culture to where this sounds so out of place, and it used to sound in place? Um, What happened? So it's complex. There's a number of factors. Here's just a few Uh, One thing that we've done in recent decades in our country, for example, is we've separated sex sharply from procreation. We've also delayed marriage. So the the delay of marriage means that the, the enjoyment of the gift of sex can't be enjoyed until later, which then feels like a terrible idea to many people. Um, Again, it's complex, though, because the delay of marriage is also partly a response to the failure of marriages in previous generations and repeated divorces without biblical grounds, which often was due to sexual infidelity anyways. So this is complex and rooted, and and there's reactions going on in each generation. Another reason is we as a nation have become, as a culture, have become more uh, private and individualistic, right? Our bedrooms Our bodies are our business. We don't think other people have a right to tell us what to do or that we could speak into what anyone else does with those things. We kind of have our own private individualistic view. Another uh, factor that's come into this shift is that many Christians or professing Christians have been harsh and hypocritical. They've been unwelcoming to sexual sinners, though we are all sexual sinners. And they have been hypocritical and holding up standards. Not that they just can't keep. That's not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is holding up a standards you don't even intend to keep. Uh, and doing things privately and secretly. So here's what might be surprising. Our culture is actually becoming a lot more like the first century culture that first heard this from the Apostle Paul in this book of Ephesians. Paul is writing this letter to Christians who were in a culture who would have thought that the Christian vision of sexuality was crazy. They did think it was crazy. The city of Ephesus was saturated with what the Bible would call sexual immorality. The people in Ephesus would have looked at the Christians like they were nuts. In fact, this is one of the most striking ways that Christians stood out in their culture in those early centuries. 
They were known for keeping sexual activity in the context of marriage. That would have been viewed as incredible to the people in that culture. And it was more radical, I think, in their culture than it is in ours, at least right now. So for Christians, it's going to be more and more important that we think well about what it means to be a Christian. When a culture agrees with what Christians believe, it can lead us to not really think about the rationale for what we believe. When the culture shifts, then it gives us this fresh opportunity. But if we don't do the hard work of getting clear, and we don't do the hard work of thinking about this well, and talking together about this well, and discipling children to think well about this, then what we're, what's going to happen to us is what Paul said in chapter 4. We're going to be blown about and tossed by all sorts of winds and waves of different teaching. So just as important as thinking well about this is actually living according to this. So the main concern of this text is that there be not even a hint of sexual immorality or porneia among Christians and churches, which means that if you're a Christian, you're responsible for other believers. To be a member of a local church is to be accountable to and accountable for other members of that local church. So we need to gently, kindly, patiently, but clearly help one another in this area. And this is relevant to every one of us because every one of us, including me, is a sexual sinner. I am a sexual sinner. I have disordered sexual desires. And the one thing I know about everything, everyone in this room is that you are a sexual sinner too. It's all of us. It's a hard word then for all of us. This is not just a hard word for those who are single in this season of life or those who may have same-sex attractions. This is a hard word for everybody because the biblical standard runs against the way every human heart now responds to sexuality in a world after Genesis 3 when sin entered the world. And so we need to be humble then. We walk together uh, recognizing that we do not have perfectly ordered sexual desires. So we walk together with humil- humility, we walk together with honesty, and we walk together with help. We don't extend our hand to point a finger, we extend our hand to help one another. So that's sexual immorality, and he says, let it not even be a named, named among us. Second category, greed. Paul uses the word covetous here in verse 3. Greed is discontented desire for more. Greed happens when we are not satisfied in God and what He gives us. So here's what's going on in the heart with greed. We're saying two things in our hearts. First, we're saying God is not enough. I want something else more than I want God. That's the first thing we're saying in our hearts. The second thing is this, what God gives me is not enough. I'm not content with his gifts. I want more than what he gives me. In other words, greed is about wanting more than God and more than what God gives. It comes from a heart that's not satisfied with God and not satisfied with his generosity to us. In other words, greed is about wanting more than God and more than he gives. And in verse 5, Paul calls the covetous person an idolater. Do you see that in verse 5? Greed is idolatry. And that makes sense, right? Because it says that something is more important to me than God, which is idolatry, displacing God with 
one of his gifts or anything else. Greed is about getting more and more money or possessions because those are what we love more than God. Now, I don't know who you think of when you think about a greedy person, but it probably isn't yourself. We hardly ever see this in ourselves. This is why it's the only sin, as far as I can tell, that Jesus says we need to be on guard against because we never actually think that we are covetous or greedy. Tim Keller once said that in all his decades of pastoral ministry, no one has ever come to him for counseling and confessed that they are greedy and they need help. No one's ever confessed the sin of covetousness to him. Isn't that striking? That should just make us think, what's, what's going on uh, with us? Do we not confess this and acknowledge it because we don't have an issue with this or because there's something particularly blinding about this sin. It's probably more prevalent than you or I think. One author said that covetousness is the great unconfessed sin of the Western middle classes. We often don't see that we're covetous because many of us have the means to get what we want. If we want something, we can go ahead and just get it, which means there's never this tension of angst and longing, right? Because if there was and we couldn't get what we want, then we're frustrated and we're we're deeply upset that we can't get what we want. But at least when it comes to money or possessions, those who have means have the desire, fulfill the desire. If it's always fulfilled, it's harder to see that this is even a problem in you because you just get whatever you want. It's only when funds run short that you may be able to see the disorder in your heart. So here's a question to ask to see if this is in your heart to whatever degree. How generous are you? One author put it this way, if you are living as well as you are able to live, you are covetous. If you are living equal to your means, you are covetous. Here's what he means. And that sounds kind of outrageous maybe at first, doesn't it? Here's what he means. If you are living up to your means, that means you are not sacrificing and giving anything away. You aren't being generous, and generosity is the opposite of covetousness, right? We're satisfied, and so we give. So generosity was one of the ways that the early Christians were also strikingly countercultural. Those first Christians stood out because of their sexual ethic and their generosity. People saw Christians and thought, why in the world are they not having sex with whoever they want? And why in the world are they giving all their things away? How in the world are they so generous? Powerful combination, isn't it? It's a powerful combination then. It's a power com- powerful combination now. So we're also to be countercultural with our speech. This is the third category. Verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. Um, I was in Canada last week. Speaking at a men's retreat, and our topic was how Christ transforms the way we speak. So I was buried in these texts through the Bible that address our language and our words, and I was re-shocked again into the reality of how powerful our words are and how seriously we should take them in light of how seriously God takes them and Jesus takes them. And one area that Paul addresses here with our speech is crude joking. These are probably jokes that are sexually suggestive or have a double entendre. So this is pervasive in our culture and entertainment, right? I mean, name a comedy 
uh, movie, a comedic movie or show that does not have some kind of crude joking defined like that. It's going to be hard to do, isn't it? And Paul is saying to Christians and churches, this is completely out of place and you need to help one another. Jesus is not laughing at sexually suggestive jokes, even if they're incredibly witty, right? We can't say, but it was funny, right? Yeah, that was a bit crude, but it was funny. In fact, reverse those. You say, um, yes, that was funny, maybe, in a sense, but it was crude, and Jesus isn't laughing at it. Um, Completely out of place because those kinds of jokes objectify people and demean the sacred gift of sexual integrity. So those are the three categories. Obviously, more to say. Sexual morality, greed, impure speech. And for all of these, do you see the standard here? These are not even to be named among us. They're completely out of place, he says. The key phrase is at the end of verse 3. As is proper among the saints, right? Saints meaning just term for all Christians. So here's a paraphrase of that. These things, all the things we've talked about so far, these things are not fitting for people who are saints. That is people who have been forgiven and made alive through Jesus. We have a new identity. We are new creatures. We have new hearts. We have new values. God is making us into a new humanity. God is restoring us to live how we were always meant to live. And so, in light of that, in light of this grace of God cleaning up our mess by forgiving us for all of our failures and then renewing us by the power of the Spirit, in light of this, these kinds of things aren't fitting. They don't make any sense to be accepted and normative and celebrated or casually and flippantly embraced. So, in other words, it's not just that we have to get rid of these things. Do you see the logic here is that we get to? It's not just that we must change. It's that we can change. We have a new power and a new freedom and a new joyful identity here because God's restoring us to true life. There's one thing that then that's central to our life together. If these things are completely out of place, what's the one thing that enters in and pushes these out? It's Thanksgiving. And that's really striking because Paul lists these three overarching categories of what we need to avoid as Christians, but isn't it striking that he doesn't then give three alternate categories that might more naturally correspond with those, right? He doesn't say, instead of these three, let there be sexual integrity and generosity and pure speech. No, that would make perfect sense, wouldn't it? Instead, He's giving the one overarching category that's needed. It's the one thing that, if you have it, will also produce these other virtues that you need. Thanksgiving is what we were made for. God made us to be filled with overflowing thanksgiving for Himself and for every good gift He gives. And so the pervasive tone is to be thanksgiving. Look at verse 20 of this chapter. Just jumping ahead where he mentions Thanksgiving again. Listen to how he puts it here. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is comprehensive. Giving thanks for everything all the time through Jesus. So here's why it's so fitting 
that this is the virtue that's mentioned, to fill everything we do in every moment of our day in place of these other categories. This is fitting because ungratefulness is at the heart of the human problem. In Romans 1, you don't need to turn there, but Paul gives this incredibly a sad summary of the human condition in light of sin's entrance into the world. And he, he lists all sorts of problems that we have, including the ones that we've already looked at today. But here's the root in the beginning of it all. He says that God has revealed himself in creation. And then he says this in Romans 1.21, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So the deep problem in humanity is that God has made himself clear as a generous giver. And we refuse to acknowledge him and give thanks to him. And then our minds begin to get darkened. And as Paul says there, he gives us over to all sorts of desires of our hearts. So we refuse to want him. We refuse to be content with his gifts. That's, that's at the root of what's wrong with us. And this explains then why thanksgiving is the opposite of greed or covetousness, right? Which Paul says is idolatry. Because thanksgiving toward God flows from a heart that has deep contentment with God. If God is satisfying to us, if we're content with Him and His gifts, then that is the opposite of idolatry or covetousness. So thanksgiving is tied to contentment then. So when we're discontent, we're tempted to then covet. It leads to covetousness. It leads to greed to get more. It leads to getting mad at God because He's not giving us the life circumstance that we have probably wrongly expected Him to give us. We're mad at Him for not giving us more of what we want. So in other words, covetousness puts God's gifts at the center of our lives. And then our emotional state orbits around those. Whereas thanksgiving puts God at the center. And our emotional life orbits around Him. Covetousness says, I need more. Thanksgiving says, I have enough. Covetousness says, I don't want God. Thanksgiving says, God is what I most want. Covetousness says, I need God and I need people to give me more. Otherwise, I'm not going to be happy. Thanksgiving says, I praise God and I give things to other people because I'm already content. Because I have God and whatever He chooses to give me. So that's why thanksgiving then is at the heart of the Christian life. So finally, why does this all matter? The tone of this text is serious. Verses 5 and 6 give us two warnings. Read them with me. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, and that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So Paul is saying here that everyone whose lives are marked by sexual immorality and greed will not be saved in the end. They will experience God's wrath rather than His blessing. And he's saying this because apparently some people may be trying to deceive the Christians in Ephesus. He mentions that in verse 6. Right? A lot of people then and a lot of people now have a theology of deception. Here are a few ways that people try to deceive today, on purpose or not, with unbiblical theology. And this leads 
to a muting of Paul's warning here. So two, two ways that this happens today. First, many Christians um, are deceived into approving or affirming sexual immorality or greed. Here's how. With sexual immorality, many are trying to reinterpret the Bible to say that it doesn't actually teach that the historic Christian sexual ethic is actually there. Or some say that it does teach that, but that we need to move beyond this, that the Bible is pointing us actually forward to a new era even beyond the New Testament where we can still develop our sexual ethic, and it may even contradict things that God said were immoral before. And they're writing books, they're writing articles, and deceiving people. With greed, a similar thing's happening. Many people are teaching a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. So they're saying that God's goal is for us to right now be rich and be healthy. And so you don't actually have to be generous except giving to their ministry. And then God will make you wealthy. That's motivating generosity with greed. If you give, you'll get. So there's a deceptive teaching that mutes these warnings by saying the Bible actually says this stuff's okay. Whatever you might have thought about some historic sexual, Christian sexual, sexual ethic, not actually there. Or, I think the more honest of these people are saying it is there, but let's not embrace it. So here's another way that deceptive teaching can lead us astray and cause us to mute this warning. Some people may say that Christians don't actually have to live transformed lives. The, the gospel then of this teaching is that of cheap grace. They'd say that since you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, which is true, and since you're not saved based upon your works, then good works are therefore optional for Christians to pursue. They aren't really important. You can live however you want and still consider yourself a Christian. Don't worry about it. And Paul is saying here, no, if you are not experiencing a measure of transformation here, then your life is still marked by sexual immorality and greed. And if that's true of you, then that shows you're not actually part of God's kingdom. No matter what you think you believe in your head or say you believe with your mouth, your, your life shows what you believe. Now, Paul is not talking about the struggles that many Christians have in that sense. He's not talking about one-time sins or even multiple sins. He's not talking about those things. What he's talking about is a pattern of life and an unwillingness to repent. This is about someone who's not fighting these sins that we mentioned earlier. So Paul isn't saying that we then earn our salvation by fighting sin. He's saying that if we actually experience salvation, then we must and we will fight sin. And this is because, and I say this Often, because it's so often misunderstood in our Christian cultures, this is because God always gives two gifts when He saves us. He forgives us, and He begins to transform us. He gives us forgiveness, and He gives us a new heart in the Holy Spirit. And this is why Paul says here, you can't say, I'm forgiven, and I am unwilling to embrace what the Bible says about sexuality or generosity or honoring speech. So here's one of the keys to understanding what Paul's saying. Do you see what he calls someone who's unrepentant here? We saw it earlier. A greedy person is an idolater. It's someone who's fundamentally not following Jesus, even if they say and think they do. So in light of this, some of you may need to be encouraged. You have a tender conscience. You're trusting Christ. You're being transformed. You are repenting. 
but the sin that still lingers in your heart sometimes makes you question your salvation. And if that's you, this text is not meant to unsettle you. Keep going. Some of you, though, need to be warned. Maybe you have been flippant about transformation. Maybe you've been casual about sexual immorality. Maybe you have a sexual addiction that no one knows about and you're not doing anything to fight. Maybe you've not been generous at all. And maybe you're basically living for yourself and not Jesus. This is a warning for you this morning. God's Word says that real Christians fight sin. And if they're flippant about the things that Jesus hates, they cannot claim to actually follow Him. So let's return to the center of this text here, which is thanksgiving. This is the real power for transformation and the path forward for all of us. The path forward is not just to get rid of sexual morality and greed and unfitting speech. The path forward is to replace those behaviors with thanksgiving. And thanksgiving and thankfulness is by definition responsive. We can't just be thankful, right? You can't just say, I'm going to be thankful right now. Thankfulness is always a response. So this picture of us living in this world with ungrateful hearts needing to be thankful and then filled with various aspects of the sins we've talked about, how do we actually become thankful people? Well, we need this external word to come at us. We need God to rescue us through Jesus and proclaim the good news of his grace and forgiveness to sinners like us and the gift of the Holy Spirit to empower us to be transformed as we're forgiven as well. And this good news enters in and we look at God and we say, thank you. Thank you for rescuing me. Thank you for rescuing me in my mess when I've been so ungrateful to you for so many things so often. Thank you for loving me from your heart from eternity past. Thank you for adopting me into your family and promising me this incredible future and a new creation with you and your people forever. And thank you that right now you haven't left me alone with my addictions, but you are helping me. Thank you that you've brought me into a church family where I have brothers and sisters who will help me and that I get the privilege of helping to know you and trust you and be satisfied with you as well. We, we thank God for all of these things because he's just showering us with them. And so we receive it and we say thank you and we find that it pushes these things out. So let's thank God for our sexuality. It's his idea. It's his gift. He's not embarrassed by it. Let's thank God for everything that we have that can be received to cultivate thankfulness. Let's thank God together. Let's thank God as families and as friends and in small groups. We do this just about every night as our family. Just what are you thankful for? How has God been kind to us today? And let's thank him for it. Do that as small groups as well. Let's help each other thank God. And this means that if we have a friend or a fellow member of our church who is in sexual immorality um, and is flippant about it or is ungenerous or has crude language, we can lead them to turn from that by showing them what God's Word clearly says and by showing them God's grace and His power to help them change and to show them that thankfulness is the path forward. And so if Thanksgiving is going to continue to be growing as the center of our lives and our church, then that means Jesus has to be the center because He, being center, pushes out all of these other aspects of life and replaces them with thankfulness. So, let's thank Him together. Let's pray.
Our Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. You have been unceasingly generous. We thank you that you are fundamentally not a taker but a giver. And you have given us every breath we have. You've given us grace every moment of our lives. And you've sent Jesus to rescue us from our ungratefulness and its consequences. And so we pray that you would continue to stir our affections for you, help us to be grateful to you, and live in this joy and enjoyment of you and your kindness through Jesus by your Spirit's power. And we pray that as we do this, we would be a light in our families and our friendships and our communities and neighborhoods and workplaces, that people would be surprised by the things that they should be surprised about, by us taking uh, this vision of sexuality seriously and joyfully embracing what you say about it, by living generously and surprising the world with how generous we are, not because we're trying to prove anything, but because of how generous you've been to us. And we pray that they would be surprised at our gratefulness and that you would get all the glory because only you can do this in our hearts by your Spirit. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand to receive a benediction from God's Word. And as a reminder, I'm always up here for several minutes after the sermon. If you have any questions or things you want to talk about, or if you're exploring who Jesus is, I would love to talk to you more more about Him as well. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify us completely, and may our whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls us is faithful. He will surely do it. Go in peace. Love you all.